You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. About the church, um, I wanted to say uh, it's so important to know who we are. It's one thing to mistake the identity of someone else, right? And then actually this happened to me when I was a kid. Have you guys ever had that? Maybe you have a similar story. There used to be a store in Wilsonville called Fry's Electronics. Do you remember that store? Some of the, I was like, yeah, that was an awesome store, right? I really was sad when it closed. But you remember how huge that store was, right? And um, my parents, we would go there every now and then. And I'm the youngest of three brothers, so we'd always be up to no good. But one time in this store, we, I got separated from uh, my posse of like shenanigans, my two older brothers. And my parents were somewhere else. And if you've been in this store before, it's ginormous. And I remember just like, I don't remember how old I was, but I was fairly young, between 8 and 10. So I had enough self-confidence to know I can find my parents, but also enough like genuine fear that I was like, I might die. (laughs) And I remember running around the store for what seemed like an eternity, and I finally spot, I I don't remember if it was my mom or my dad, but I think it might have been my dad from like across, like across the store somehow. And I bolted, and I ran as fast as I could, and I remember I got up and like, hugged my arms around him. I was like, Dad, I'm so glad I found you. And then I look up and he's not my dad. <laughs> Just not my dad at all. They had to, I'm pretty sure they had to do the, like the, like, Kent Egley, your, your child is waiting for you at customer service. Because like, at that point, I was like, I give up. I give up. <laughs> but I remember like being so embarrassed that moment because this man's like, whose kid is hugging me? And I remember like, whose guy am I hugging? <laughs> but it's one thing to mistake the identity of someone else, Right? It's another thing to entirely to mistake our own identity. We should know who we are. We live out whatever we believe to be true about ourselves. When I spoke a few weeks back in October, I said this. It's from the the book of Proverbs where King Solomon is saying, like, what we believe of ourselves, so we will be. Have you ever told a lie once that just, like, you forgot how long you've been telling the lie that you just kind of believe it to be true still, right? Like some of us, maybe you've done that before. Like, oh, like you, you talked about how big a fish was once. And every time you tell the fish story, it gets bigger or like it's just always now you caught a fish that was pretty big, but now it's always ginormous. Sometimes whatever we believe to be true, we just naturally begin to live it out to be true. And so even, even, even this, imagine for a moment you were invited to a party and you know how some parties have like the name tags on them or my name is or hello, I am. What if you were invited to a party and think about this and you weren't allowed to write your name on that name tag? What would you write down? Would it be like your successes? Would it be, uh, you know, your triumphs? Would it be your failures, your regrets? Would it be your mistakes? Would it be your fears or maybe your hopes and your dreams? What would you write on that tag? Would it be someone, uh, something someone else has said about you? We live out what we believe to be true about ourselves, even if it's not the truth. Our identity informs our activity. Our identity, who we see ourselves as or what we see ourselves to be, informs who we end up being. Our identity drives that activity, and we will live out whatever we believe to be true about ourselves. If I am, church, if I am, what I do, I will always need to do more to maintain my value. If you are what you do, you will always need to do more and more and more to maintain the value you hold. 
if you are what other people say you are, you will always be trying to please other people to receive your value. But if you are, and if the church is, if we as the church are who God says we are, we always have freedom and a value that's given to us for free that we do not have to earn. So we're going to be looking at the identity of the church this morning, and we're going to look at the the book of Ephesus this morning, uh, the book of Ephesians. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, And I want to be understood from the very beginning that you know, when we're talking about our identity and the identity of the church, the church is shortcomings as well. I want, to, I want to do this this morning by looking at Ephesians and intentionally looking at the city of Ephesus itself, that church in Ephesus. If you don't know a whole lot about this church, it's, pretty, it's a pretty fascinating church. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesus chapter 1. Put your bookmark in and stay there because that's all we're going to be today. We're going to read through Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians can be summed up in two words, church, two words, identity and purpose. The book, you read the book of Ephesians, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end today, this morning, with a challenge, but to, to challenge you to go and see this, identity and purpose. Basically, who I am and what am I supposed to do? This is the same question that our church and every church is, is asking ourselves today. Every person is, you know, who am I and what am I to do? So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 say this. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love Paul's openings. Like, I want Paul to write me a letter once, just one time, and see what he says and how nice it is. Because I don't think he ever opens a letter in a mean way. He does end letters kind of like, Okay, come on. And I would expect that about my life as well, but just to get like a nice greeting from Paul one day would be nice. Because Paul, see, Paul is like such a changed man when he's writing this, right? He has one of the most intense, powerful, life-changing conversion stories in, the, in human history. His conversion story is impactful, and he's writing it as Paul, but he's writing it as this man who's a, this changed man from who he grew up as. Chuck Swindell said that. He says, it took a changed man to write this kind of letter in uh, the book of Ephesians. And so I actually want to show you a map of Ephesus just so we all have a clear picture of where it is. We circled it for you as well, so in case you miss it. Um, That's where Ephesus is. It's right there in the province of Asia. It's not quite in Greece or Italy or the Rome area, but it's right there on the edge. It It was a port city full of commerce. It was called the Queen City, actually, and it was the religious center of that region in Asia. And see, Paul visited Ephesus and on his second missionary journey, right? He went on his first one. He went on a second one. He went to Ephesus, and then he even, uh, he stayed there for three years on his third missionary journey. That tells me there's something about Ephesus we need to pay attention to. Paul, a guy who went everywhere and anywhere and everywhere, as far as he could go, at one point stayed there for three full years. And I want to show you, this is, this is probably why. I want to show you our next slide. This is probably why. This is what's called the Temple of Artemis, and it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was located in the city of Ephesus, and it's the reason why Ephesus was one of the religious centers of the, of the whole region and the province of Asia. And see, uh, Ephesus, or sorry, not Ephesus, Artemis, my bad, was the goddess of fertility and the goddess of the hunt. 
And people worshiped her like she was the it thing. People worshiped her like she was the only thing on this planet worth worshiping. Sound familiar? (laughs) Right? The hunt for identity and value, purpose and wealth. Does that sound like a culture you know of today? Many of us are in the nature of the hunt, right? We worship the hunt. And that, that drive for more, 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 and more. And Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, is such a great example of a society that we currently live in and we're trying to thrive in and, and preach the gospel in, whereas Ephesus was doing it a couple thousand years ago. Um, this title, sorry, um, Ephesians is unique because it's not a letter written to correct the church in Ephesus, whereas a lot of Paul's letters come with correction. It's written to describe the nature and function of the church. And Paul is writing to a group of ordinary people in a culture with immense financial pressure. People with way too much to do and not enough time to do it. People with too much anxiety, too much stress, too much to do. Again, does that sound like anyone you know? People like us. He's writing to people to understand some of the pressures and anxieties in a world driven forward by success. He's writing to people like us, and what does he call them? This is why I want Paul to write to me. He calls them God's holy people in Ephesus. I love it. The title, this title that he gives them has everything to do with God's love, and it applies to you and me as well. We're living in the same society. We're striving for the same thing that the people in Ephesus and the church in Ephesus was trying to combat and come against and bring the love and acceptance of God into. God's holy people. In this letter, Paul tackles themes of love, parenting, sexuality, identity, marriage, everything we have going on we've talked about the last few months. And Ephesians is a glimpse of what the church could be and what it should be. It is arguably the clearest letter that addresses the nature and the function of the church that we get in the New Testament. So what is the nature and function of the church? Is it something that I attend on Sunday mornings most of the time? Or is it something more? Can I tell you this? It's a scary statistic that they, we got about five to seven years ago, and I, I, I got to imagine, I don't know if it's gotten any better. The average church attender in America attends 1.5 times a month. That's the average. So some of you are like, no, I'm every Sunday. Thank you. You're bringing the average up. <laughs> Paul wants both them and us to see that the church is a living organism. It's not a building. It's not a place. It's people. And so Paul divided his letter to the Ephesians into two clear segments, um, applying the truths of the first part makes possible the actions and the lifestyle of the second part. And the book of Ephesians hits a wide range of moral and ethical behaviors designed to ensure believers are living up to a heavenly calling. So as we continue in our faith from day to day, months to months, year to years, temptation to get comfortable will always exist. However, Paul presents the gift of God in Christ and the benefits we receive so clearly that we cannot help but ask ourselves if our lives reflect the reality as they should. If our focus, sorry, yeah, it, if our focus is to ask ourselves this question, 
how have you grown in your Christian life since the day you came to faith in Jesus? I feel like that's a question we should ask ourselves every day. How have you grown since the day you put your faith in Jesus to now? How have you grown? And how are you growing right now? I feel like not just, and I don't mean church as our church, as our church is growing, like people in seats, because that's not necessarily what we care about. We care about people growing and taking the message outside the doors. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, which we're going to read through this morning, we see this massive encouragement and this massive buildup that Paul does of the church in Ephesus. So originally, if you read it in the Greek, it's just one giant run-on sentence. And if you've ever read Paul, like any of Paul's letters, and even in like English and our translations, you're like, you see Paul writing, you're like, man, does this guy believe in periods or does he hate them? And if you read it in the Greek, it's even worse. Like this, this is about verses 3 through 14 is one giant sentence that he does not take a break for, hardly allows you to take a breath because it's like you almost can see him furiously like writing it on the table like, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. Okay, maybe I'm done. No, I'm not in. Okay, I'm done. He just has too much good things to stay. Um, and in this section, we see seven verbs that describe God's action in the church and what he is asking, what he, what he wants to do for us and what he's calling us to do as well. We see God blessed his people. He chose his people. He destined them. He bestowed them. He lavished them. He made them known, and he will gather them up. These are seven verbs that um, Paul writes down about God. And the theologian Eugene Peterson describes this section was, was this. He says, seven, these are seven God-activated verbs that provide a widescreen panorama of the comprehensive ways that God works in this comprehensive cosmos that we find ourselves lost. God is on our side. He is not against us. He is not passive. God is totally involved in the cosmos. He is not indifferent. We must submit ourselves to the blessing. We think we, think we are seeking God. No, in fact, God is seeking us. He is seeking his church. He is seeking you. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, says this church, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Doesn't that sound pretty great? That's the blessing that we have as his people, as his church. The blessing, God blesses us in every heavenly place. There is no higher key to God's blessings. Like you're like, okay, well, we have the heavenly blessing. What's, what else? Look, that's as good as it gets. What else could you ask for? If you are in Christ, you lack nothing. You have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is not. If you just do this, then God will bless you more. The Ephesians would have been very familiar with that kind of lifestyle of, and that kind of blessing. Like, if you do this, then you'll be blessed more. If you are Carter, you'll be blessed more. If you visit the temple of Artemis and do this, 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 you'll be blessed more. They would have lived in this through the culture and Ephesus with the worship of Artemis. And Artemis can be described as witchcraft, essentially, when it's broken down into what they do. The Ephesians would have lived in such a way that 
um, there were things they needed to do in order to be blessed daily and to be blessed by this deity that had a stronghold in this town. The word blessing here in the Greek also is the word eulogia, and it's where we get the word eulogy, and it literally means to, as we, we, it means we praise. We see that those blessings, and we get to see them intact in, in verses 4 through 14. So verses 4 through 6 says this, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. I really wish Ephesians, I'm going to keep going back to this. I really wish Ephesians was written to me. Like, I feel pretty good about myself. God has been chasing after us since the beginning of time. Remember what I read about what that guy said? Like, he, he is seeking after you. He has been seeking after you since the beginning. God initiates. God pursues. When we were unable to do anything about our sin, God still chose us. And he chooses us in love for adoption to being sons and daughters. We are not just employees in God's house. We are not just servants in his house. We are his sons and his daughters. It's kind of like the prodigal son. One of the best like, analogies and one of the best stories I think Jesus tells about the love of the father. When the son says, hey, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance that you owe me if you had died. And the father's like, okay, I'll give you what you ask for, even if it's not good for you. And he goes and squanders it. And when he realizes how badly he needs his father, he, run, he, he decides to come back and beg for forgiveness. But on the way, his father sees him from a long ways off and runs to him and wraps his arms around him and puts a robe on him, puts a ring on him and says, welcome home. Throws a huge party for him. See, God is, he's initiating, he's seeking. He's not, he's not sitting there waiting around for you. And he's not also, he's not sitting around waiting for his church to mobilize and go do something. He's always initiating and he's always challenging. He's always calling us to more. What is he calling you to do more of? What is he calling you to start? Maybe this, what is he calling you to finish? It's really easy to start something. It's really hard to finish really well. <clears throat> we are not unwanted house guests in God's home, church. See, this because this, the scandal of grace is, uh, and the gospel is not just about who God excludes, because he doesn't do that. It's about who he lets in. That is the scandal that comes with grace. Because so often I feel like we catch ourselves maybe saying, either in this building or outside this building, Lord, certainly not that person. That person does not look like someone who would follow you. Lord, certainly not that person. God knows you intimately on a level no one else does, and he loves you most because of it. God both knows you best and loves you most. Think about that. God knows you better than anyone. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets. He knows the things you've done. He knows the things you have shame for. He knows the things that you've never told anyone or the thoughts you've had. And he still loves you more than any other person in existence. <clears throat> Ephesians goes on in 7 through 10 and says, In him we have redemption through his blood, 
and forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Not that he just kind of gave us enough, enough of. He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. <clears throat> There's an emphasis here on all things. And again, I'm going to give you the Greek phrase that's top hanta. And it's all encompassing. Doesn't leave anything out. All things. And see, in Genesis, we had this kind of split, right, with Adam and Eve where they fractured the peace of God. They fractured the shalom of God and the world. And they sought their own goodness, their own blessing, apart from God. It's kind of like Humpty Dumpty, like when they fell, when he falls off the wall, and it's like all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put them back together again. I forgot how much that was to say. <laughs> it's not just about saving souls, although that's part of it. It's about the spiritual edification of it. Like, thank God, this king that we serve can put everything back together again. Am I right? Thank God, thank, thank God that he can, literally, when we fall off the wall and our lives are broken apart, he's like, don't worry, I've got the code or I've got the blueprint, I can put all this back together. That's the, that's the king that we serve. That's the king that the church worships. That's the king that the church goes out in the world and has, we should be shouting from the mountains as loud as we can, come and see the goodness of God. Come and experience it. It's about how God is restoring all things, not just gathering things together uh, and gathering people together to sing some good songs and hear some good words and then go about the rest of their week the next week. It's about being agents of healing and reconciliation and grace and mercy and whatever we may need to be. This is a lifestyle of worship and this is the lifestyle of the church. This is our identity. In Ephesians 11 through 14, this is how the section ends. It says, in him, we were also chosen. Thank God he has chose us. Having been predestined according to his plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to be put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, the praise of his glory. And see, in this section, we see the whole Trinity involved in the process. I, I love this section of scripture and this passage where it talks about being sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's one of my favorite Right now, like I keep keeps coming up in my youth sermons because I want our students to hear about the Holy Spirit. It's so good. Is that in this section we see all three forms of God in the Trinity. We see that the Father purposes, we see the Son redeems, and we see the Holy Spirit reveals. And now the seal here is important. Because when was the last time you received a letter with a seal on it? Can I ask you that question? Have you ever? I, don't, I think I did once, but it was like fake. It was like it's supposed to make something look fancy. And I was like, oh, cool. And I opened it up and I was like, we're trying to reach about your car's extended warranty. And I was like, great, great. I hate those calls or those letters. 
But the seal is important in the first century context, as well as beyond, in far into the future, we see that a letter with the seal meant a few things. The seal, it meant security. And you knew the security of the news that you were receiving being delivered because it was sealed and it was not broken. It meant authenticity and that it was not fake because it had a mark that told you who it was from. It meant ownership that it was not fake and it, wasn't, it was completely real and it was for you and you knew who it was coming from because it was clearly sealed, marked, and it came with authority. Someone's authority stamped. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, church. You have the security. You have the authenticity. You have the ownership. And most importantly, can I say this? You have the authority of God with you every step you take. Every step you take, you are a sealed note ready to be delivered to someone who needs to hear about the goodness of God, and you open it, and when you open it, people who see you, they encounter you, they hear you speak, they know this person has the authenticity, the security of faith, and the authority and ownership from God with them. And then when you're finished that conversation, you can sit yourself back up and go again, because that seal is permanent as long as you want it. The Holy Spirit is the one who ensures us that God is going to finish what he started. The seal is the promise that we will receive the inheritance. We are promised eternal life. It's like earnest money. Have, if you've bought a house before, I always hate the earnest money process when I bought a house. Because like, here, let me take some hard-earned money that I have and let me write a check and give it to you. And if nothing goes well for me at all, you still get it. That makes sense. It doesn't make sense. But it's like, it's that, it's, you're saying, I'm putting, I'm putting my money where my confidence and my direction is, and I'm willing to put money down because that's how confident I am in something. You, you are God's earnest money. He's put you down. He's put the deposit down. Literally in his blood, he made a deposit in you and said, okay, I'm giving this to you. You're going to hold up your end of the bargain, right? Here's the Holy Spirit. I'm going to mark you. You're going to hold up your end, Right? How do we know that God is going to come through on his part of the deal and take us to heaven, right? Well, because he has already put the best part of heaven in us, in his presence. When the Holy Spirit has come in and dwelled in you and sealed you from that first moment of faith, God said, I'm putting the best part of heaven, myself, in you. He says, you may be a work in progress, and if you feel that way, that's okay. You can join the club with me. It's a great club to be in. I'm pre we're going to order jackets soon if you want to get in on it. <laughs> if you're a work in progress, that's okay because God says he loves us just the way we are. He loves his church. Despite our shortcomings, despite our mistakes, despite our direction or where we've gone or what we've said, he says, that's my bride. And I died for her. I died for that people. God loves his church despite its imperfections. That's what love is, right? Love is seeing someone for who they truly are and saying, I don't care about all the bad stuff that might come with it. I'm going to love you anyways. That's why we model marriage after the covenant God made with us. That's why we model actual love and a marriage kind of love between two people after that kind of love. Because it says, yeah, sometimes you're grumpy. 
Sometimes you don't look the best. Sometimes your breath in the morning is terrible. But I will still love you no matter what. I'm not talking about anyone in particular, by the way. My wife has none of those things. <laughs> he not only seals us, but he also gives us the Holy Spirit as a promise of the inheritance. And I've, um, I've heard the Holy Spirit described as the moon before. Have you ever heard this? Where, you know, the sun goes down and we see the moon in the sky. And the moon is only reflecting the light from the sun. Right? Because the moon doesn't have its own light. It's not like the sun goes down and then like they turn the switch on for the moon. The, the sun goes down and the moon in the sky is reflecting the sun's light. And it's just a sign in the sky that says, don't worry, the sun is coming back in a few hours. I'll stay here as a placeholder until he does. The Holy Spirit's like the moon. Like the sun has gone down. He's ascended into heaven. He's preparing a place for you and for his church. And the moon, the Holy Spirit's saying, don't worry, I will light the way until he comes back. And so here is when I, here's where I want to land this morning. In this passage we just read, we read the phrase, in Christ or in him, ten times. Ten so what does that actually mean? What, is it, what does in Christ or in him mean? So I actually I have an analogy here I want to do. I don't usually do this, but I have an analogy here. We have a mason jar here. It's, it's not, this isn't a trick mason jar either. There's, I'm going to do something, and I want you to hold your applause to the end, okay? <laughs> this isn't, it's, just, it's just a mason jar, okay? And I have uh, one of my daughter Shauna's toys. It's uh, JJ from Cocomelon. And see, God did not say, I want you to be next to Jesus. Or I don't want you to be, Paul didn't say, I want you to be next to him or, in, or, or, or next to Jesus, next to Christ, right? He said, I want you to be in Christ. I want you to be in him. Now I'm going to do something, okay? This is going to blow your mind. <laughs> this is not what Paul asked us to do. He asked us to do this. <laughs> Thank you. Because, see, it's really hard to get away from Jesus when you're in him. It's really hard for other things to get to you when you're in him. It's really hard to also get out. There's, there is kind of a small way out, but it's really hard to get out once you're in him, right? But when you're not in him, you can bump into him, sure. But other things can come and they can pull you away. Other things can come in and take you away from Jesus. But when you're in him... That's all that matters, church. That's really, that's really all that matters. To be in Christ is to look at that figure, to look at JJ in the jar and to see Jesus reflected in that. So if you're JJ in this scenario, when someone looks at you, they see Jesus. They see the Father through your image. They see the imago Dei, the image of God, when they see your image. <clears throat> what would you put on the Hi, My Name Is sticker? What would you put on there? When the father looks at us, guess what? He sees his son. And because he sees his son, we have grace. What would you put on that sticker today? Is it a righteousness that is given to us freely, right? Is that what, is that what God sees? It's a righteousness that is given to us freely that we could never earn or deliver on our own. And like the people of the church of Ephesus who would have been dealing with this, 
The church of God does not earn anything. This is what it means to be in Christ. The church is and should be a reflection of the Son, and that's it. At its core, this is who the church is. This is our identity, is that we are a reflection of the Son of God who came into the world so that we would experience the love of God, and others might also. We are not just near Christ or in proximity to Christ. Our position is in Christ. It's a relationship. When the world looks at us, it should see his son. This is the identity. And these 14 verses, this is how I want to close this morning. There are 20, there we see 24 verbs. And I had to Google this because I'm really bad at English and stuff, but I was like, this is so interesting when I was writing this. There's 24 verbs, and God does 20 of them, and we do four of them. It's a little imbalanced, right? God always gets the worst end of the, 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 the whole earnest money deal, right? But he does his part every time, and we are asked to do four. You can go and look through the, them and count them, the ones that God does, but I'm going to ask, I'm going to tell you what yours are. The four verbs that we, that we get is we receive, we hope, we listen, and we believe. We receive, we hope, we listen, we believe. That's what God is asking us to do. As a church, here's what I want us to know about our identity. It's received, it's not achieved. The sooner we embody that message out there, church, the sooner people will feel welcome and experience it in here. In the world that says, climb the ladder, even if you have to throw an elbow every now and then to get by or to get past someone. See, that's what the world might say, but Jesus says, no, you don't have to earn it. Your identity is a gift. There's nothing to climb. There's nothing to do. You don't have to fight for it. It's a gift. We, the church, are far more than our best or worst moments because the church has had some, some pretty bad moments. We are the church. We are not part of a church. We are the church of God as people in our identity. And um, when we talk to our kids uh, a lot lately, we've tried to change our parenting style a little bit because we have a two-year-old girl who's the strongest-willed person I think I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and my family have said it too. Like even my grandma came to me recently. She's like, she's the strongest little girl I think I've ever met. And I was like, thanks, grandma. Where do you think she can know? But when we look at our kids right now, what we're trying to do and what we're trying to, what we're doing imperfectly, but instead of saying, no, stop doing that or don't do that, we're trying to say, no, stop. This is not who you are. Reminding our kids that they are good every day, despite their imperfections, despite their challenges, despite their, their shortcomings, instead of saying, you're being bad or do not do that, it's no, son. No, daughter, remember who you are. Remember that you are good, and this is not a reflection of that. When you know who you are, you know what to do. It goes back to the very beginning. We will do, and we will view ourselves through who we think we are. If you know who you are, church, you will know what you're supposed to do. Our failures as a people or as a church may explain us but no one has the right to define us except the one who made us. We're going to keep saying this in our identity series. I think it's been said mostly in every sermon is no one gets to define you but the person who made you. 
We are in Christ. God's church is made in the image of his son. God's church belongs in Christ, not next to him or close to him, but in him. And this is the identity we want the city of Camby to see, to feel, to know, to understand. We are the church. We are a church in Jesus Christ, and we accept that as our identity. Can I challenge you this morning as we close? I want to pray here in a minute. But if you have time during this next really busy Christmas season, Open the book of Ephesians and read it front to back. And read it again. And maybe even read it a third time or a fourth time. But read it and to see what the goal of the church is, what's been given to you, the authority you have, the power you have, what it looks like to be a good husband, a good wife, what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, what it looks like to be part of his church on mission. Read Ephesians. You don't have to do it today. But tomorrow, maybe at the break room or at the lunch table when you're at work, open your Bible and say, I'm going to read Ephesians right now. I want to know who I'm supposed to be in this environment. Because we're not the church only in this building and we leave and we stop being the church. We are the church here where we, we, we get filled up and we get empowered and taught how to be the church. So out there, we are the church embodied. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the church at Ephesus, Lord, and what you did there. Thank you for Paul's writing and his words. Lord, thank you for just the mission you've given us. Thank you for the overwhelmingly amazing support you've given us, Lord, where you said, I want my name to be preached to all nations, and you trusted your church to do that. Where you could step in and do it for us, you said, I want to trust my people to be the example, Lord. Help us to be the example. Help our church to be the, the light, especially in our community as we come into Christmas, as we light up our campus for Christmas, Lord, and we invite people to come and experience the joy of the Lord. Lord, help our church be a blessing to our community. Help our people be all about how good you are and how important it is for people to know that they know that they know that you are good. Lord, thank you for giving us our identity so we don't need to find it for ourselves. Thank you for empowering us to know it so we could go out and share it. Lord, I pray that in this season, our church and our, us as people, your people, would be true to that and faithful to that identity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503 266 4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.